So Easter is coming up in a few short weeks. We have some amazing things planned. You heard about the choir. If you want to sing in the choir, just text that number. We also have a very special Good Friday service we're going to announce this week. But it's going to be on Good Friday, obviously, all day from noon through 8 p.m., I do believe, at Picket on Court downtown. So we're going to take prayer downtown for Good Friday. So this will be a great day. If everybody was turn to Matthew chapter 5, and as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to everybody joining us here in the room, but also online. If you have not subscribed to our YouTube channel, and the Facebook and all that stuff, please do so and get you all the content we deliver every single week. Uh, we continue our, our Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 Sermon on the Mount series of Masterclass. We've covered most of the Beatitudes. Today we cover what it means to be a peacemaker. Then next week we end the Beatitudes with persecution and, and the rewards of persecution. But in Matthew chapter 5, he breaks down a lot, of, a lot of really strong things. If you think about this, we've talked about this, is the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says it should look like if you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. These characteristics, these attributes, these things should be part of every believer's life. And this week in, in verse 9, he really says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, pace, peacemakers, pacemaker, whatever you want to phrase it, is, is like this. You know, when you watch sports, I've been, I've been trying to watch a little bit of the March Madness. I've watched one or two games, and there's, if you watch football, you'll see the same thing. There's always three teams. There's whoever's on offense, they are trying to score. When football, they're trying to score a touchdown. They're trying to throw a pass for a touchdown or kick a field goal. They're trying to score. In basketball, they're trying to get the ball into the basket to score two points or three points, etc. So there's an offensive team. Their job is to Score. Then there's a defensive team. Their job is to what? Stop them from scoring. That's, that's the whole purpose. Go out there, do whatever you can to stop them from scoring. But did you know there was a third team? That's right. These guys. Right? They, they have a jersey. Obviously, Saban does not like this guy. Saban doesn't like any people, especially people that wear black and white. And, and so the officials' jobs are to stay neutral and to call fouls of anything that the other two teams do that get outside the playbook. Their job is to maintain the peace of the game so the game can function, the game can move forward, they can crown a winner or loser at the end. Like their job as the team is to make sure the game happens correctly. But then you always have these guys like this that look like that. Right, so you could say that the, the officials are the peacemakers in the game. They're not trying to score. They're not trying to stop the other team from scoring. Their job is to make sure everybody plays according to the rules. In life and in the kingdom, we're not on offense, we're not on defense. We are the referees of culture. Like when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, our job is to make sure that our playbook is being played out in the church and in culture, and that playbook is the Bible. Like our job is to make sure that we live life according to the playbook and call fouls when culture starts getting outside of those reins or outside of those rules. The problem with this is around the 1940s, the church, the kingdom citizens, stopped being referees. We stopped being neutral and calling fouls, and we started picking teams. 
We picked teams whether we were pro-civil rights or we were against civil rights. Started picking teams whether we're Republicans or Democrats. We started picking teams whether we're pro this doctrine or anti this doctrine. And the officials took off their black and white jerseys and put on team jerseys. So then we stopped calling fouls against certain people and the other team started to hate us. And the reason in culture we see a lack of peace is the church is supposed to be the peacemakers. And instead, we start trying to win and cause other people to lose. We see this so much, so it's so clear in politics. Did you realize, and I know I joke about this, but Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. And both Republicans and Democrats both play outside of God's playbook at times. But when you choose to align yourself with a team, it prevents you from calling fouls when that team begins to foul. And as the kingdom citizens, our job is to make sure kingdom rule and reign are established here on earth. And the only way we can do that is to maintain our allegiance to the commissioner of the league, which is God himself and his playbook, so he can call fouls on both sides. And so when Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So you can say this a couple ways. The, the sons of God shall be called peacemakers, or those that calls and make peace shall be called sons of God. Now, what's interesting is when Jesus is preaching this sermon on the mount, on the mountainside, by the Sea of Galilee, you had all these Galileans, all these rural Jews, and they'd been thinking about the rule of the kingdom for years. Now, now they thought about the rule of the kingdom not in bringing peace, but in bringing power. They thought the Messiah would show up and he would show up with a whole army of people with him. They thought it would be a, a materialistic human ruler who would come and set up a new nation of Israel here in the land, who would kick out the Romans, establish power, establish political power and gain and influence and a new government, all these things he would establish here on earth. So it was almost like a political rally for them to say, okay, here's our new politician." He's going to kick out the bad politicians, establish a new government. It's a revolution. And then Jesus shows up and he says, well, blessed are the peacemakers. It would have rocked them. The Galileans were really rough, like warmongering type of people. It would have rocked them and say, no, 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 that's, you, you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to establish a kingdom. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to rule. You can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is supposed to kick all these other people out. Peace. It would have rocked them. But, but here's, here's something I think Jesus is trying to communicate. Conflict is natural. Like, we naturally have conflict in life. We naturally have arguments. We naturally have division. We naturally have divorce. We naturally have wars. We naturally have all these arguments. We naturally have debates. We, we, war is natural. Like in Ukraine, that's natural. Do you realize the, the world has been at war for almost every single year of its existence? It's natural. Do you realize fighting with your spouse is natural? Wars are natural. Arguments are natural. Political division is natural. Gossip is natural. Divisions in churches are natural. Splits in churches are natural. It's all natural. Like division is natural. Conflict is natural. But peace is supernatural. And so what Jesus is saying, say, listen, you're going to hear later in Matthew 24, he says, you'll hear rumors of wars and these type of things will happen. He's saying, this is all natural, but peace is supernatural. Do you realize there is no conflict in heaven? 
There's no war in heaven. There's no division in heaven. There's no gossip in heaven. There's no divorce in heaven. There's no arguments in heaven. There's no debates in heaven. Why? That's all earthly things. It's all natural things. But in heaven is a place of peace. It's a peace of, place of shalom. And so it's supernatural. And if you're a kingdom citizen, you should operate in the supernatural more than the natural. And that's what Jesus is trying to accomplish. And this one quick tight verse. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Romans 12 said this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He's saying, as long as it depends on you, you should be working your tail off to be a peacemaker. You should be working to make peace. As long as it depends on you, you should live peaceably. Why? It's super natural. And do you realize if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have the spirit of peace within you. So everywhere you go, peace should come with you. No one should ever say, oh man, here comes Bobby. Every time he comes, just chaos and conflict. And do No, when people see this, like, here comes peace. Here comes peace. Do you realize when the church shows up, they should say, oh, here comes another argument over doctrine. Or when the church shows up, oh, here comes another political argument. No, when the church shows up, they should say, here comes peace. Peace is making its way here. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what is a peacemaker? Peacemakers are just people who love peace and pursue it. Like if, if you are a peacemaker, it means you love peace. You want peace more than anything else. You want to make peace. You want to see peace. You want to live in peace, but you want to pursue peace. That's always a motivation of you to see peace in your marriage. Like you love peace and you want to see peace in your marriage. You want to see peace in your family. You want to see peace in your church. You want to see peace at your work. You want to see peace on your ball team. You want to see peace at your school. You want to see peace in our community. You want to see peace in our nation. You want to see peace in our world. Peacemakers love peace. They talk about peace. They pursue peace. They dream about peace. Revelation 21 is on the tip of their minds that the world is going to have peace. Realize God's whole plan goes from peace to sin to redemption back to peace all over again. And peacemakers are one saying, I cannot wait for God to bring peace back in. Peacemakers are people that love peace more than being right. Do you realize sometimes you can choose peace instead of having your opinion take over somebody else's. They love peace more than personal freedoms. Yes, you have freedoms, but you love peace more than your personal freedoms. They pursue peace instead of revenge. They pursue peace instead of war. They, they want to see peace at any cost necessary. Do you realize Jesus laid down all his personal freedoms so that we could have peace? And peacemakers are people that are willing to lay down their personal freedoms, lay down their personal agendas, lay down their personal need for justice and revenge to see peace reign. And peace very rarely comes without a holy write-off of forgiveness. But I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, Jesus said that, but later on he says he came to cause division. So because in, in our day and age, we have certain types of people, some are like, very liberal. They want to see peace at all costs, no matter what the sin is, no matter what the agenda is. They just want peace, and they want to cave into peace. Then other people are like, no, I want to see war. I want to see culture wars, and etc. And here's what Jesus said. Luke chapter 12, a couple, probably a year or two later, he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. 
For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, which that already happens anyway, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Like literally he tells them, on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. But then here he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I've come to give division. So what is this paradox or this contradiction that Jesus seems like he's, he's given us? Like how can in one mouth he says peace, in the other mouth he says division? And, and it comes down to this, that Jesus says there has to be an allegiance to his kingdom that will divide you from every other kingdom of the world. And what he's saying here is when you're committed and you're aligned in my kingdom, it's going to cause some division between you and your family because you can only have one family. It's either your kingdom family or your earthly family. That's why it's so important to get your earthly family saved because that's the only family that's going to endure for all of eternity is this kingdom family. He says there's an allegiance to this family. And when you make allegiance to this, there is a relational consequence to following Jesus. Because Jesus is a moving target, and as you follow him, you're moving away from people that aren't following him. It automatically causes division between you and somebody else if they're not following Jesus and you are. That's why some of you have tension in your relationships. It's this scripture being manifest. You think, well, you know, it's this. We have these arguments about this. No, no. The argument is this. You are pursuing Jesus, and they are not. It's like dragging a ball and chain. It causes division and tension. So Jesus here is saying, listen, don't think that I've come to say, let's all get together in one big group hug with all the different religions and all the different nationalities and all the different ideas and all the different cultural agendas and all the different trends. Let's all get together and just love each other really well. He says, no, if you love me, it's actually going to cause division between loving the world. And it should. See, because there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. And I think that's the biggest thing that's going on today. Peacekeeping is when you compromise kingdom truth for worldly values. It means I know there's some kingdom truth, but I'm going to sacrifice these things to appease people in the world because I don't want to have any conflict. So in order to keep peace with the world, I'm not going to pursue the things of God. In order to keep peace with culture, I'm not going to align myself with God in his kingdom. In order to keep peace with the world, I'm not going to be a referee. I'm going to join their team. And so there's a tension in the church world where a lot of liberal denominations are actually taking off their referee jersey and joining the team of cultural agenda and sin. You see this with the Methodist denomination that is literally being divided right now over homosexual marriage and homosexual ministers. And half the church says, but in order to keep peace, we don't want conflict. God is loving. God is this. They compromise the playbook to join the team so there's no argument. Because peacekeeping placates injustices, lies, and evil in order to prevent conflict. And if we are all honest, some of us are so afraid of conflict that we'll compromise almost anything in order not to have a fight. In Luke chapter 12, this is exactly what Jesus is speaking against. He said, I've not come to keep the peace. I've come to make peace. And making peace is totally different because when you make peace, 
it's like this. Peacemaking making is when you build a bridge from the kingdom to the world. It's when you build a bridge from the kingdom of heaven into the world so people can leave the world and the culture of the world to enter into God's kingdom. Peacekeeping is where you just keep placating the whole kingdom thing of the world and you never move them to the new kingdom. It doesn't matter how peaceful and loving and nice you are if you're on a one-way ticket to hell. The only thing that's beneficial is if you can make peace with God so you can escape this world and enter into the next world. See, peacekeeping and peacemaking is totally different. Peacekeeping is what the world wants. Because the world wants to push away the light so we can all have fun in the dark. Peacemaking is when you shine a light in the darkness so people can find a way to escape and find real true peace. And we live in a day and age where there's a major conflict between the two. That half the church says they want to keep the peace. And they will sacrifice everything they know about God. They will sacrifice everything they know about the Word of God in order to, to save relationships that are dying anyway. In order to save their reputation with the world instead of making peace with God and helping other people make peace with Him. And it's so dangerous. It is so dangerous to get caught up in the whole, let's just all get along, let's all get along. See, because the thing is this, if you try to keep peace, it's meaning you want your reputation to be good with outsiders in the world. But making peace is when you want to keep your reputation good with God and His kingdom. Two totally different things. And the only way I can really explain it is, St. Augustine had this quote years ago. He said this, he said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So we'll say that again. In essentials, unity, and in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. An essential is any truth which, if denied or misrepresented, nullifies the gospel. So these are our core things that, one, we believe the Word of God is the living Word of God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who was born of a virgin, lived 33 years of a holy, unblemished, perfect, pure life, who was sacrificed on the cross for our sins, who three days later was resurrected from the grave. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He sent his Holy Spirit to indwell within us until he returns and sets up his kingdom on earth. That is the essentials. That is the essentials. Like, we can't compromise that without losing the necessity of the gospel. But the other part, the non-essentials, that's a conviction. A conviction is a deeply held belief, which if believed in error, will not nullify the gospel, but can harm spiritual growth. A preference or, or, or the other things is something I care about, but it, that is not a matter of personal uh, a gospel. It's just a matter of personal choice. So here's my rules for that. So in the essentials, which, which are key, they are worth dying for. It is worth dying for the infallibility of Scripture because without the Scriptures, we cannot find Jesus. It is worth dying for that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, who died for our sins, was resurrected, and ascended to the throne. It is worth dying for that. It is worth dying for the fact the Holy Spirit is ever present and has established his kingdom and setting up a kingdom for Jesus to return again in Revelation 21, whenever that may be in our lifetime. Those are worth dying for. Convictions, though, are worth debating. So I will die. I have other minister friends that I'm friends with. I don't agree with a lot of things, 
I have convictions they don't have, but the essentials, we have to, have to agree on those essentials or we can't walk together. I'm not going to placate you because you have bad doctrine or theology or you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Like, those things we, we have to agree on. But convictions, they're not essentials. They're worth debating. I have strong convictions about not drinking alcohol. Strong convictions. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink any alcohol. You know why? I got saved from alcohol. Why would I keep drinking if I didn't? I have pastor friends who think it's fine. Jesus turned water into wine. They have a whole debate. I can debate with them all day. But it is a strong conviction for me. And my household, my girls know, we do not, Gorleys do not drink. God broke a generational chain in my life. It stopped me. You're not going to pick it back up. Like that's a conviction. Have other convictions. Those are convictions. So with other people, I'm not going to say you're not saved because you're a drink, but I'm going to show you how I believe it affects your spiritual growth and your walk and how you shouldn't drink. We can look at the whole mega church falling right now. Hillsong other churches, Hope City Church, all these churches, all these moral failures. You know what the common denominators with every single of these moral failures? Alcohol. Alcohol. They start drinking a little, you know, Paul told Timothy, drink a glass of wine to help his stomach. Well, you don't have stomach problems, you have Pepto-Bismol. It's amazing how you're you drink a little bit of glass of wine, the glass gets bigger and bigger and bigger. All of a sudden, it turns into margaritas on Taco Tuesday. Then it turns into a kegger. All of a sudden, now you're going to the hotel rooms with other women. See, alcohol to me is a strong conviction because it affects the entire church. So I'm going to debate that. I'm not willing to die on that hill, but I'll debate it. But then the last part is in all things charity are things that are just preferences to me. Worship style is a preference to me. I have a style of worship I prefer. Not everybody prefers it. I have a style of preaching I prefer. I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm going to let you do what you want to. If I'm going to make peace, I make peace over the essentials. I'm going to divide over the essentials. I can make peace and all the other things because a peacemaker is somebody who literally brings peace to people and brings people to peace. That's a peacemaker. And Jesus was the greatest peacemaker of all. He literally came from heaven to earth to bring peace. And then he takes everyone who follows him from earth into perfect shalom or peace. And if we're going to be peacemakers, we need to be people that we can bring peace to people and we can bring people to peace. So the question would be, when was the last time somebody could have identified you as a peacemaker? What's the last time somebody said, man, I'm so glad Bobby showed up? Because when he showed up, you know, we were in this conflict and he just brought peace with it. When's the last time somebody was going through, Pastor Tristan was praying, somebody was going through hell on earth and storms and you showed up and said, you know what? I don't have all the right answers, but I can show you peace. Like you bring peace to people and then you bring people to peace. Like that, that's our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's our calling that we have. So much so in the book Philemon, the New Testament, probably none of y'all even read that book. Philemon is one chapter, and it's a story of Paul who's mediating a conflict between Onemesis and another guy. One was a slave, the other was a slave owner. The slave got saved and was helping Paul in prison. Paul mediates and says, listen, I know you'll have this conflict. I'm going to interject myself in here and say, listen, hey, Philemon, I know you have some issues, but you love me. I've, I've, I've served you. I've loved you well. Hear me out. 
Oh, nemesis. Hey, I know you've had this issue, but you love me. He said, see, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you have a mandate. If two people that you love and love you and you have equity with, if they don't get along, you don't choose sides in the argument. You mediate the argument to bring peace to the people of God. The problem with that is we don't normally interject to mediate. We interject to choose teams. And that's where the gossip mill comes. That's where divisions come through. That's where all the chaos comes through. But in this whole book, he literally says, your job is to bring peace and bring people to peace. Why is that important? Because peacemakers shall be called what? Sons of God. Because true children always resemble the Father. True children always look like their dad. You know, one of the things I hate about pastoring, and just be completely transparent, is when people have babies, I love when they get to see babies born in church. But what I hate is when Toya starts with this whole junk of, that baby looks just like its daddy. I'm like, it looks like a raisin to me. No, it has his nose. I'm like, no, I can't even, I can't tell there's from the nose and the mouth. That I, it just all looks this. And she said, no, it looks just like his mama. It has its mama's eyes. Its eyes are closed. Like, we'll argue. And what they're trying to say is children should resemble their parents. And Jesus is saying, if you're a son of God, you should look like your father who's a peacemaker. Like, so for my dad, you cannot argue me and my dad are related. Like, that's, my, that's me when I was a baby when I had hair, and that's my dad in his Afro days. Like, no, there's a picture of me about the same age that if you cover up the hair, because I never had, I don't know where the genes stopped with me, but you cover up the hair, we look exactly the same. And like, my dad's dad was an electrician. My dad was an electrician. I did electric work all through high school when I first got out of the Air Force. My brother's electrician. We, we just all resemble my father. Right? So some of you maybe look like your dad or maybe you look like your mom. You resemble them. You carry some things. Maybe your spouse says, I mean, you're acting just like your mom right now. What they're saying is you're carrying characteristics or attributes of your mother right now. Or, man, you sound just like your dad right now. You're carrying attributes or characteristics of your dad. Or, hey, you look just like your dad. RJ, who's 15, we're at a basketball game this year, and his arms are actually longer than my arms. And his legs are longer than my legs, but I'm three inches taller. He's all limbs, no torso. And we're at a basketball game. There's a family sitting in front of us. They don't know he's our kid. And they said, wow, do you see 22's arms? It's like a spider out there. I'm like, well, that's my spider. Quit talking about my... Like you, you, like, you look at us. We look the same. Like, our arms are le- like, we resemble our father. Right? I played basketball. My dad played basketball. My grandmother, my grandfather played basketball. Like, we did it. Do you realize that if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you have a new father? You should resemble your heavenly father more than your earthly father. Do you realize God is also known as Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace? Jehovah Shalom. Your father is called the God of peace. Do you realize Jesus is called the what? Prince of peace. Do you realize the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of peace? The Trinity job is peacemaking. So what happens is the family business is peacemaking. And so of my family, the family business, the electrical work, when you get a new father, your new business is not your business. It's the family business. And the family business is to bring peace to people and bring people to peace. 
Do you realize that when you show up, no one should ever be concerned you're bringing division with you. When you show up, you should always be bringing a bridge from the kingdom into the situation and bringing people across the bridge into the kingdom. We are called peacemakers in the kingdom of heaven. We are not political rivalries. We are not doctrinal arguers. We are peacemakers. And peacemakers build bridges. They don't burn them. Peacemakers build bridges. They don't burn them. That means when things happen, even if you can't make peace, you leave the bridge up. We live in a day and age in the whole trigger world that once somebody doesn't agree with you, you burn the bridge. There's never any chance of peace ever coming back. And I believe God is calling the church right now, one, to stand very far away from culture. I believe the culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And it is not a time for peacekeeping. It's a time of building bridges over from this kingdom into the world so we can run back over there real quick and bring people with us, not to camp out in the world, but again, make peace in the world. And so how do we do that? You start looking at conflict differently. So this is, this is going to help you. These principles from Matthew 18 are going to help you find and make peace in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, in your church, on your sports team, in your classroom, at your job, wherever you go, these principles of peacemaking work. And you got to realize that with every conflict lies an opportunity. Do you realize that every single time somebody sins, it's an opportunity for grace? Do you realize that every time somebody has an argument, it's an opportunity for growth? And, and I had to learn this years ago because my family, just being completely transparent, my family did not handle conflict well growing up. Conflict turned into violence. Conflict turned into divorce. It turned into all types of negative things. So when I first, even, even when I was out in the world, conflict was very violent. So I get married, and every time there's a conflict, I'd pull away from the conflict. Now, Toya's one to argue because her family can argue all day, every day, and still love each other. My family, if you argue, you hate each other for the rest of eternity. And so I didn't realize that conflict was an opportunity. I thought it was a negative thing. And I realized later on in life that conflict's actually very positive because what conflict is, it means there's something standing between the two of you and you can't grow closer until that obstacle's moved out of the way. And so that, that conflict is actually an opportunity to grow closer in love or to grow closer in unity. Many times it's that conflict between you and somebody else that's an opportunity for you to grow spiritually and to stretch your love, to exercise your love, and to grow to become more like Jesus, which is our goal, to awaken and empower you to live and love like Jesus. Many times the only way you accomplish that is through conflict. Conflict with yourself, conflict with others, sometimes even conflict with a God. And if you can get it, it changes everything. But the problem is, most of us have one of these four ways of viewing conflict, right? So some of you have a flight response. As soon as conflict arises, you want to run as far away as you can. Many times that's why people get divorced. It's not because the marriage is not irreconcilable. It's because one party can't handle conflict. Every time conflict arises, they run as far away as they possibly can from it. It's like my buddy in the Air Force. He'd run his mouth, run his mouth, run his mouth, and as soon as the fight broke off, he was gone. Some of you are like that. You start arguments, and then you escape from them. You flee from them. And when you do that, you flee from the opportunity to actually grow and mature. Some of you have a fight response. 
You are just looking for a fight. Every conflict is an opportunity for you to show the world how right you are and how wrong everybody else is. It's an opportunity for you to put on your Facebook, your social media, how you're more righteous than anybody else with the other viewpoints. And you are looking for a fight to attack others. Some of you have a freeze response. You just freeze. And you're going to stay in this frozen state until somebody solves the conflict for you. And last but not least is a forgiving response. It's a peacemaker response. Peacemakers don't freeze. Peacemakers don't flee. Peacemakers don't, don't attack. They find a way to make peace. And here it is in Matthew chapter 18. One, glorify God. In this situation, in this conflict, whether it's ideology, whether it's cultural, whether it's sin, whether it's a personal agenda, whether it's an issue, whether it's somebody sinned against you, whatever, you have to look at it as how can I please God and glorify God through this situation? Your first response should never be, how can I show the other party how right I am? It should be, how can I show the other party how good God is? That should be your first response. Our first purpose in life is to glorify Him. Not to win arguments, not to be self-righteous, but how can I glorify God? It says this in 1 Corinthians, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own agenda, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul literally says, I don't care if you're arguing over food to idols or alcohol or doctrine. Don't give any offense to anybody else because your job is to glorify God. You can glorify him in your doctrine. You can glorify him in your convictions. You can glorify him in your discussions. Just don't negate the glory of God for your personal freedoms and agenda. And I will tell you, the more difficult the conflict, the greater the glory for God. The more difficult the conflict, whether it's a, a, a divorce issue or an affair issue or an infidelity issue, that's terrible conflict. Like, no one dreams in a million years you're going to be in a situation where you're contemplating divorce over infidelity. But do you realize that's also a chance, an incredible chance, to display the glory of God and the grace of God more than any other situation in life? Many times you're faced with incredible pain because God wants to produce incredible glory for himself. And so the first question I have to ask myself, if y'all knew how many times I've seen somebody post stupid stuff on Facebook and I just want to correct them and I have it all typed out and all of a sudden God says, oh, okay, that's great to glorify yourself and your name. You'll get a few likes on that, but what about me? And I have to stop because I realize most of the time we respond, we respond to protect our own pride, not God's glory. And my job and your job is to make sure God is glorified in everything we do. Number two is get the log out of your own eye first. Meaning self-examination and self-awareness. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. But in Matthew 7, Jesus literally says, you hypocrites, before you start dealing with somebody else's stuff, make sure you check yourself first. There used to be a phrase when I was growing up called, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. How many times times when we're in conflict or we're in an argument, do we look at ourselves first and say, where, 
where am I at fault in this situation? In marriage counseling, you know, you can have a situation where somebody is 98% wrong. I've never seen a situation where somebody's 100% wrong. 98% wrong because somebody else could have always handled something a little bit better. I start looking for, even if I'm, oh, Toy's not here, even if Toy is 99% wrong, I look for my 1% first. God, how could I have loved her better? How could I have sacrificed more for her? How could I have encouraged her better? How could I have led her better? How could I? And you start with yourself because even if it's a splinter in their eye, you can't see it with the log in your own eye. And so you have to look at yourself, examine yourself, and check yourself before you start. 90% of our conflicts would be solved if we just started with ourselves which is 90% of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Start with yourself, and most things will take care of themselves. So the question would be, what can you do to examine yourself? Where have you fallen short in the, con- in the conflict or situation? So one, check your attitude. Maybe it's just your attitude's wrong. Maybe you have the right truth or the right motives, but maybe your attitude about it is just wrong. Maybe you have a self-righteous attitude when you start dealing with the conflict. If that's so, change it. Do you know your attitude can change? Like, you can actually change your attitude from a negative attitude to a positive attitude. Number two, check your heart. Is there any sin or pain or wounds in your heart that's causing you to react in a certain way? Are there wounds from your past you're bringing into this current conflict or reality? If there is, purify your heart, confess it, get it healed. Number three, check your motives. Maybe your motives are bad. Maybe you're just wanting to argue on Facebook because you want people to think you're better than you really are. And if we're really honest, most of the social media conflict is just between a bunch of self-righteous people trying to prove they're more self-righteous than the other person. And if I can see that in myself and see where I'm weak in those areas, I can change it and then I can go to them and gently restore them, which is nothing more than share the truth in love. In Galatians, Paul said, go to your brother and gently restore them back. Meaning, okay, how can I glorify God? Two, I'm going to look at myself and figure out where I'm at, I've fallen short, where I could have changed, where I could have done something better. And then after that, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to confess my log in my eye. Say, hey, I know we got this going on. But I, I want to confess, I know I could have handled this better. And, you know, I love you. you all, here's the things you want to do. You want to start with confession. One, that weakens people's defense mechanisms. Two, give them a compliment because you want to reinforce the relationship, that there's a relationship there you're trying to reinforce. Then three, gently and lovingly share the truth with them about the situation, not the person. Here's what we like to do. We'll start with the compliment. Well, you know, I, you know, I know I probably could have handled this a little bit better. Um, and, you know, you're a good, nice person. But you know what? You suck at this. That's what we do. And what we're saying is we point it towards the person. Instead of the offense or the situation of saying, hey, when you made the decision, it really hurt me because it left me out of the decision making. So instead of doing that, we attack the person. That's not gently restoring That is trying to crucify them so you can be resurrected. I am going to gently restore somebody. I'm going to start with saying, hey, listen, I'm sorry. I could have led you better. I could have communicated this better. I'm sorry. But, too, I love you. 
And like, I want us to be at peace. I want us to be united. I want to be stronger, X, Y, Z. But this situation, we have to deal with this conflict. We have to deal with this obstacle. And if you can handle it that way, do you realize you can share the truth? Jesus was an expert at sharing hard truths with great love. And if we can learn to share hard truths with great love, we could literally change the world. Do you realize most of the, the um, deconstruction thing in culture, many of the, the social justice movements are nothing more than people rejecting truth because there's no love attached to it. I personally believe people love truth as long as it comes with unconditional love. And so we don't get, the, we don't get to say, I love you if. I love you if you agree with me. I love you if you change the way you think. I love you if you adapt to my ideology. I love you if. Like, that is a worldly type of love that doesn't maintain or sustain conflict. How can you apply that love if your kid comes home and says, well, Dad, I love you. I want you to be there for me, but I don't believe in God anymore. Or Dad, God, I, you know, Mom, Dad, I, I love you, but, you know, I, I'm going to marry the same gender as myself. So at that point, does your love change because I love you if you have my values? I, I love you if you have my agenda. I love you if you vote the way I vote. No, that's not real love. We don't want anybody. Could you imagine if God said, well, I love you if. No, no. In that song we said, even while we were still sinners. Pastor Brian read Matthew, uh, Romans 5. Even while we were yet sinners, he loved us. See, true love doesn't say I love you if. True love says I love you regardless. And when you gently restore people, if you can bring that type of love where I love you regardless, but this needs to be taken care of, it changes things. Then finally, you can go and be reconciled. So I'm going to try to glorify God. I'm going to examine myself, get the log out of my eye. I'm going to go and gently restore, share the truth in love, but then I'm going to try to walk in love by going and being reconciled. Meaning sometimes you have to overlook an offense. Sometimes the things we argue about really aren't that big of a deal. Do you realize in, in premarital counseling, I tell people this all the time, there are things that your spouse does now, you have no idea how bad it's going to annoy you later on. And the greatest spiritual principle you can have in Proverbs 11 says, it is to God's glory to overlook an offense. There are some minor offenses, like, God forbid, she's not here, I can say whatever I want to. My wife has transferred her genetic deformities of never shutting a cabinet door ever in our house. I will go through and I'll count one, two. I'll start slamming. I slam them just because I want everybody in the house to know I'll shut them. One, two. I've counted up to 17 cabinet doors. That's all of them. If they use something, they don't put the top back on. Leave the top off and put it back. And they never put it back in the same place. Now, I could live my life in turmoil, or I could find really good therapy, which I go to, and I could overlook their offenses. Do, do you realize that sometimes the greatest form of love is just overlooking somebody else's offense? Because it probably doesn't affect you anyway. And when you do that, it changes the game. And Matthew chapter 5 says this, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come to your gift. Do you realize God doesn't care nearly as much about your offering of your tithes as he does your peace with other people? Now, you probably won't hear this preach in a lot of places. 
I would rather you be at peace with your brother or your sister or with your spouse than you give checks in the offering plate. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in the Scripture. If you're about to give because all you're doing is reinforcing your self-righteousness, don't give. Go and make it right first with your brother. Make peace. Then come back. See, peace is part of the kingdom of heaven. You can't bypass it with an offering. You can't bypass it with a gift. You can't bypass it because you're a good preacher. You can't bypass it because you're a good person. Like, you have to be a peacemaker. Like, it's part of the kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, it means you can go and be reconciled. You can walk together in love. It means you don't look back. You walk together in love, hand in hand, in unity, in peace. But there are times... When you can't walk together in love, you need to walk away in love. What that means is this, that sometimes in life, the greatest way to make peace is to cause division. Do you realize at the end of time, when Jesus returns, he brings the greatest peace the universe has ever seen, but he does it by creating separation between his kingdom and the other kingdoms. Sometimes you can walk together in love, but sometimes you need to walk away in love and cause separation because this principle my pastor taught me, forgiveness is freely given, but trust must be earned. And sometimes the only way you can make peace is to give forgiveness and say, I love you, I'll see you later. If I see you at Walmart, I won't walk around you, but I don't want you calling me, I don't want you texting me because I don't trust you. And there's people I love, I don't trust Therefore, there's boundaries between us so I can keep my peace and they can keep their peace. Paul tells this story in Acts chapter 15. Paul has been traveling the known world at the time, planting churches, pastoring churches, pastoring people. He says, hey, we need to go. We need to check on these churches and pour into these pastors again. So it's him and Barnabas. And Barnabas says, well, you know, I'll go with you, but I want to take John Mark. And it says a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas. He said, I don't want to take John Mark. He was with us before, and he didn't finish the trip. I don't trust him. So they made an agreement. Paul joined with Silas. They went on their journey. John Mark joined Barnabas. They went on their journey. They walked away in love. Paul tells Timothy later in 2 Timothy, I think, chapter 4 or 5. He says, hey, beware of Alex the, carper, uh, the coppersmith. He said, he's done me great damage and great harm, but I love him and I've forgiven him. Just watch out for him. What he's saying is, forgiveness is free, but trust must be earned. So if we're going to make peace, we've got to be people that either walk together in love or walk away in love. And I believe when you do that, it changes the game for you. And the world shall say, they must be sons and daughters of God. Do you realize that's what the world should be saying anyway? Jesus said, they'll know you because of your love. Peace is a manifestation of love. Unity is a manifestation of love. And that you should be such a peacemaker that people know that you're a child of God because the peace you bring and the people you take to peace. So here's the question. Who do you need to make peace with? Who do you need to make peace with?
who can you send a text to today and glorify God, check the log in your own eye, and then gently share the truth with them so that you can walk together in love or walk alone in love? Because blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. Just one quick moment. You know, peace is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. Jehovah Shalom, the Prince of Peace, the Spirit of Peace. Heaven is Shalom, a, a sea of glass which resembles the peace of God. There's no disruption in the water, no ripples, nothing because it's a perfect peace. Revelation 21 talks about Jesus coming back to earth and setting up a kingdom of peace here on earth that the lion and lamb shall be at peace together. There should be no wars, no tears, no mourning, no weeping. Why? It's perfect shalom. And you begin to enter into shalom the moment you make peace with God. You deal with the conflict, the obstacle between you and him, which is sin that causes separation. You stand before him, you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, and the peace of God comes into your heart through the Holy Spirit. Before you can be a peacemaker, you have to be a peace receiver. So that's you this morning. You say, you know what? I, I, need, I need to make peace with God this morning. There's been some things in my life, or maybe I just need a new start. And I just need to say this morning, I confess there's some things in between us. I repent. And God, I need you to come and fill my heart with your peace. If that's you. I'm not going to have you stand up this morning. I'm not going to have you come forward or anything like that. I'm just going to have you raise your hand so I can see you so I can pray for you. If that's you, you say, you know, that's me. I seem to make peace this morning with God. I see you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for shalom. A peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that surpasses our failures and our mistakes and our sins. And Father, I thank you for those hands that are in this room, Father, admitting right now they need to make peace with you. I pray that, Father, the blood of Jesus covers them. And as you wash them in your blood, the peace of God begins to flow like a river in their lives. That you settle your peace within their hearts and a peace that surpasses understanding manifest in their life. Father, I pray as they do, they become peacemakers, not just peace receivers. They become peacemakers where they bring peace to people and they bring people to peace. And so, Father, I pray all this according to your glory. Father, for everybody else in this room, Father, I just pray for an anointing to be peacemakers. Father, in a world that's full of triggers and boundaries and rivalries and divisions and arguments and social media conflicts and political rallies and political objections, Father, in a world that's so full of division, I pray for supernatural peace. I pray for peacemakers that show up in the middle of conflict and bring the peace of heaven. And they can say, on earth as it is in heaven in this place. Father, I'm reminded even when you sent the disciples out two by two, and they'd walk into a house, they'd find a person of peace. And they say, peace be to this house. Father, I'm praying for people that everywhere they go, every house they go to, they bring peace. Every job they go to, they bring peace. Every classroom they walk into, they bring peace. And Father, they're known as peacemakers and sons and daughters of the Most High God. So we thank you that you've made peace with us and our desires to reflect your glory and reflect your image and to make peace with everybody in our path. In Jesus' name.